one of the main things I keep in mind of this is I've read so many articles and blog posts and opinions everywhere on the internet over the years that say, don't do rewrites. That's like the main takeaway to, to remember for all of those articles. And I want to be the person who does the opposite and says, rewrites are possible. You can do rewrites if you do them right. And how do you do them right? There's many key things involved in there, but it's not a thing where you have to kind of push the rewrite option aside if it's something that you don't think is possible. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. What up, friends? You might not be aware, but we've been partnered with Linode since 2016. That's a long time ago. Way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at Changelog.com, Linode was there to help us. And we are so grateful. Fast forward several years now and Linode is still in our corner behind the scenes, helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there. We trust Linode. They keep it fast and they keep it simple. Get $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Again, $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. What's up? Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Logo podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the world of software. I'm Adam Stukoviak, Editor-in-Chief here at ChangeLog. On today's show, we're joined by Maxime Vianku to talk about Shopify's massive storefront rewrite from a Ruby on Rails monolith to a completely new implementation written in Ruby. As you may know, it's a well-known opinion that rewrites are the single worst strategic mistake that any software company can make, and generally, it's something you should never do. But Maxime and the team at Shopify have proved successful in their efforts to rewrite Shopify storefront, and today's conversation covers all the details. So Maxime, we teased this conversation when we had your colleague Simon Eskelson on the show a few weeks back, episode 412. But he was here to talk about napkin math and he was part of this Shopify storefront rewrite, but we didn't want to talk about it with him because we knew you were coming up and we want to talk about it with you. So mm-hmm. first of all, thanks for joining us on the changelog to talk about this project of yours. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. So it's a big thing to rewrite anything, but especially something as big and powerful and successful as Shopify. I think the main piece of the news that people latched on to was the monolith versus microservices implications here as Shopify has been a poster child of Rails monoliths at scale, right? Yep. And it's something that we're learning about every day, I think. The more we kind of figure out what should go in the monolith and what shouldn't. Uh And that kind of led to the decision to split that uh, specific domain into a separate uh, application. Yeah, so maybe as we lay the foundation for this conversation, we're going to go through the decision-making process for the rewrite. We're going to go through the process of actually getting it done because it was a couple-year endeavor. And Mm -hmm. at scale, you had to move slowly and carefully. And you guys built some really cool stuff 
with some Nginx Lua rewriting things to like make sure you're doing it right along the way. We're going to dive into those details. But first of all, lay the groundwork of like what the monolith looks like, maybe before you started, what all is involved. People know Shopify as an e-commerce platform where people can run their own online shops. And so it's multi-tenant in that way. I assume a lot of our listeners know what Shopify is, but like what does the monolith look like and what all is it doing? Right. So Shopify was started almost 15 years ago now. And this all started as a simple Rails application, the majestic monolith approach where everything would be into that one application, which we're still using today, 15 years later. And we're that's the main place where most Shopify developers tend to ship code into. Of course, with scaling, you run into challenges with how you get to you know, handle multiple hundreds of developers working on the same platform, uh, shipping that, that code base into you know, at scale, but also dealing with what should go into Monolith. And as we eventually ran into a, a point where it wasn't possible to use Rails as, as it is into its base form, we hit the the limits of what we could do with basic Rails. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, Shopify is a multi-tenant application. So just dealing with the implications of that and making sure that there's no um, cross-tenant access for data, that sort of thing required some patches to the monolith. So the monolith is a an application where most of the code is present in there. We're now splitting it into separate components so that we have business domain-specific components in the monolith. And that makes it so that For example, storefront and online store specifically was this own component where everything would be into that directory. So it kind of gives us a nice way to create these boundaries between the different components and so that there's no cross uh, component access. And hopefully eventually everything has this sort of interface between each component and there's no um, violation. There was one um, article on the Shopify engineering blog that we've just posted about this. Um, that explains how we're kind of starting to enforce more the boundaries between those components to make sure that we don't run into issues with different class names that don't make sense or Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. So these are code boundaries, though. You're still inside of a process or inside of a code base. These are not services that talk over a network, correct? Right. Same process. Correct. So it's really more of a kind of a developer experience thing more than it is a topology thing for networking, for example. Okay. And so if we talk about the monolith's parts, we mentioned storefront. You can explain exactly what storefront is. Then there's the admin. If anybody's run a Shopify shop, they know what the admin is, at least to a certain degree. Surely there's more to it. There's the payment processing and the checkout part. So there are some logical sections Am I missing any? I'm sure I'm missing some. I'm sure there's tons on the back end. There's, yeah. Yes. Uh, What else is there? So there's a ton of them. Yeah, I mean, the big ones. So there's, of course, the billing stuff is in there. There's uh, payment processing, as you mentioned. There's, of course, storefront. Everything that's about pricing, returns, that kind of stuff is all separated into its own components. Mm -hmm. And it typically lines up with a specific team owning that component. To, to build it. So the way those components work is essentially a tiny Rails app within each component with its own app directory tests and everything that's kind of wrapped up into this one uh, component. And um, online store is one of them for, for the storefront specific stuff. Okay. So it's worth noting that the storefront, which is the topic of conversation here, has been rewritten during with this strenuous process that we're going to go through here. 
It's still a Ruby app. Yes. Is it still a Rails app? Is it its own Rails app, or is it somehow different than that? So we started with a base Ruby application. Uh, we are using some parts of Rails, but not Rails itself directly. And the reason for that is the way that Shopify store fronts are implemented aren't really don't really line up with the CRUD um, pattern. pattern that typically a Rails app would use. So if you go on a Shopify storefront, you go on the index page, for example. You're going to have uh, the index pages, the product pages, the collection pages, and all of those different endpoints that you would see on a storefront. Now, all of those things could be implemented as Rails actions to be rendered. But starting out from scratch, we kind of realized that we don't need everything that Rails provides, and we could simplify this with a Ruby application to get started with at first. Mm. So the storefront is kind of a simplified part of a full stack insofar as it's, I'm assuming now, so correct me here, You it's taken in a request, and then it's like basically once it determines which storefront it is, then it says, okay, get all of my templates, which are writable by the storefront owner, right? Like they're liquid templates, by whoever owns that theme or whatever it happens to be. Grab that, those templates, grab all the data, merge them together and spit out some HTML. And like in the most simplified form is what it's trying to accomplish, right? That's exactly what it is. And because of that, the goal of that specific application is to do that really well, right. really quickly and at scale. So because we don't necessarily want the same performance criteria that we would for the admin, for example, Separating that application gives us a do one thing and do it well, kind of a Unix philosophy thing mm-hmm. for that specific service to do. So what what were the goals with the rewrite? You mentioned there was like three aspects that you wanted to accomplish by going through this process. Right. So, um, of course, uh, success criteria. Uh, the first one was to make sure that we had the same features and the same behavior in the new one than we did with the older application. So by that, we say that for a given request, for the same input, if both uh, are treated as black boxes, you get the same output, and they're just behaving the same way for whatever input you give them. That's where we use the verifier mechanism to make sure that we, for a given input, we get the same output and make sure that we never serve something to buyers that is not equivalent and that's incorrect or invalid. The second one would be to um, improve performance, of course. So... Improving performance uh, with the um, new application, we're able to really focus and drill down into the performance criteria that we've set for this application. But not only the application itself, in terms of infrastructure, we've kind of thought about what we want out of this in the next 10, 20, 30 years in terms of how we want to set up Shopify storefronts to scale with time. So, for example, running on a active-active replication setup allows us to read data from different uh, locations without needing to go all around the world if uh, we don't have to. And thinking about how we write the code within the Ruby application is something that we're using different Ruby patterns that you usually wouldn't. Uh, So it's not really idiomatic Ruby. It's not really something that you kind of just write your pretty Ruby as you usually would. We are thinking about certain things that do have an impact on performance in the end. So something like thinking about the memory allocations underneath uh, is something that I don't. I know I certainly didn't do before uh, that project mm-hmm. in Ruby, but now we think about those things to um, to make sure that there isn't um, anything that we're basically make sure that we're doing the right thing for performance. 
And uh, finally, the last one was to improve uh, resilience and uh, capacity. So Shopify has this major kind of like Super Bowl part of the year, which is uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Coming up. Yes, coming up. So in a month, uh, roughly now, or even two months, I think. So end of uh, November. So that's typically the place at time when we kind of figure out or find out if everything we did during the year was good enough. And so far, it's been uh, going well. This year is going to be the first year that we're powering most of the storefronts on the platform with that new implementation. So it's our first real kind of game day for us for actual big time events uh, in the wild. And hopefully everything goes well. This may be famous last words, but hopefully everything (laughs) goes very well and uh, we're doing great. But that's the third goal of the application to basically take what we had with the monolith and make it even better because we're optimizing this exactly just for that one use case. So a big question that I would have at that point when you decide here are our goals and they're around performance, they're around scalability, uh, resiliency, and you're extracting this section which has, well, it's called a limited scope. I'm sure it's very complicated, but a limited scope logically is did you consider other languages, other runtimes altogether? Yes, we did. The one thing that made us decide to keep using Ruby is one, like all of Shopify is on Ruby. So in terms of developer knowledge transfer, that's the most accessible thing to do as an organization. Another thing is that the Liquid library that we're using to um, render storefronts is Ruby-based. So keeping that runtime is something that at the very beginning of the project kind of made sense to get started with. And the other thing that we're now starting to see is we're just starting to explore alternative runtimes for Ruby. So Truffle Ruby is something we're trying to explore to see if that could help with performance in terms of uh, storefront rendering. So it's not something that we've really wanted to move away from. We're committed to Ruby, committed to Rails, and that decision still makes sense today. Mm -hmm. Maybe eventually we'll start to think about a different uh, runtime for this, but so far it's been working working well for us. Well, the amount of stuff that you'd have to rewrite, like your your rewrite is already hazardous enough, and we all know the, the treachery that is a big rewrite. This is a pretty substantial rewrite. And it took you two years, soup to nuts. You're, you're not 100% on it, but you're getting close, right? Yep, correct. Yep. Imagine how much longer that would have been if you had to rewrite Liquid in a new language and rewrite. I'm sure you're pulling in lots of shared code throughout Shopify into yep. the new storefront that you can just build on top of. It's like starting with a bunch of Lego blocks. If you had to switch languages altogether, you'd have to build each Lego block and you may never finish. Exactly. And so I think in this sort of paradigm, extracting everything into this different application, I think is the first step. And once that's done, we're able to work with it and do something different eventually. But the first step, of course, is to take everything out and have this isolated thing that we can then play around with and experiment with. And it's so much easier to do that once you have that out of the as a separate service that you can really have the the smaller scope of um, rather than trying to work with different languages into the monolith, which is we would would definitely be a bit uh, harder to do. Curious why the storefront was chosen, or maybe it was just your team's project. Are each part of this monolith going to get the similar treatment, or are they p- parallelizing that effort, or was it just storefront first and see what happens? So so far, it's only storefront, and I don't think there's any other plans to extract any other major blocks from there. So something to keep in mind is Shopify's platform receives 
a lot of traffic, and the majority of that traffic is for storefront requests. Admin, of course, takes a good chunk of that, but but mainly is storefront traffic. So it made sense for us to optimize that specific place of the code simply because that's where most of traffic goes, and that's something that we could uh, leverage in terms of impact. The other thing is that storefronts don't necessarily have the same requirements as you would need from the admin, for example. So the admin is something where you want to have valid information at all times. And for example, payment processing and billing is something where you want the right amount of dollars being taken in and out of your accounts, right? So performance is less of a criteria there because you want to ensure that you have proper calculations and logic going on there. On the storefront, there is a bit less of that strong requirement. Yeah, I think it's spot on. I mean, a storefront is rendering, you know, correct information, obviously. It's not about, you know, not correct or incorrect. It's more like an admin is is for a limited scope of type of person, whereas yeah. a storefront is literally anybody on the internet. Exactly, yeah. And if you look at Shopify as a up or down scenario, the majority of that up or down scenario is likely looking at storefront, not so much admin or others. Like, you might get a limited and a small portion of the world is going to care but the majority is going to care about storefront being open and and fast. Exactly. So storefront, the main criteria there is performance, um, especially as people run onto mobile devices from all around the world. You want to get people to have their storefronts to be loading as fast as possible from any sort of circumstances. So in this case, there's a bit less requirement to get the right data at all times to be precise at any given second. It's really more to get the response in their in their devices to yeah. start doing something. You think about this from a uh, standpoint, you mentioned that Rails CRUD scenarios didn't really fit in with the criteria of this, which is we're kind of defining what was it that sort of pinpointed this, as Jared mentioned, why storefront? Why would you rewrite this? And would you parallel other opportunities inside of Shopify? And I think you think about the right tool for the right job. And while we're not dismissing the fact that Rails isn't amazing. As you had said, you're committed to both Ruby and Rails. So this isn't a matter of like, done with Rails, see you bye. It's more like, well, maybe in this scenario, performance and uh, speed and optimization, all these different things outweigh that. And I think the bigger play here might be to help us understand why Rails didn't fit anymore and why a rewrite made more sense. And in particular, to Jared's question, why Ruby still yet, which makes sense because, hey, you've got a lot of Ruby knowledge inside of Shopify. It would make very little sense to move away from unless you had a really good long-term plan for that. But but more so, why the rewrite for Ruby, but but so much the, the right tool for the right job. Ruby is still the right tool for the right job, but Rails didn't fit anymore in that realm. What, like, what did you gain by going pure Ruby and non-idiomatic Ruby and all those things? One thing that's interesting is we're still using a fair amount of Rails components in that new implementation that aren't necessarily the whole Rails app itself, but we are using some bits of active support to, you know, compatibility purposes to make sure that what we have in the monolith still works in the new application. There's various gems that are still used in Rails that we do use in the new implementation. So the way I see it, it's more of a hybrid in between a bare bones Ruby app and what Rails would provide. What we're kind of putting behind is everything that's the Rails routing, for example, was something that we didn't necessarily need for that implementation because of how storefronts are routed, um, can be implemented fairly simply without going with everything that Rails provides with routing. But there's a 
fair amount of uh, behavior and features that Rails does provide that we are using still in the application through gems and modules that we've um, imported there. It sounds like to me when you talk about the non-idiomatic Ruby, when I read the blog post, a lot of the, the things you're doing is like using the, the self-destructive style method calls like map bang, where it's not going to return you a new array or whatever it happens to be of objects. It's going to actually modify itself in place. And the reason why mm -hmm. you do that inside a storefront is because you are optimizing the heck out of memory consumption, right? Like you're trying to get memory consumption to an as small as it could possibly be. And so there's your why not rails right there. It's like if we can load as little, I mean, one reason, of course, there's plenty of reasons, but if you could load as little bit of that uh, code into memory as possible of what you need of rails and not the entire stack, you are in, undoubtedly going to save in memory allocation uh, all those objects you're not using. Exactly. There was a, I think it was Sam Saffron from uh, Discourse who posted a memory article, or it was an article about how Active Record takes so much memory, and I think he compared it to Simple SQL, or I don't remember the name. It's a library he wrote himself. I'm assuming it's a library where you're basically writing raw SQL with some help, I guess. Kind of, yeah, where... How I learned to stop worrying and write my own ORM. There's this one, but there's also an analysis of memory bloat in Active Record 5.2, which is a different one, which is interesting. Um, and so that's that's a good example of memory usage that we've kind of skipped with the new implementation. And for example, because Storefront is, almost all of it is read traffic, there's no writes involved, there's no deletes involved, there's no updates involved. It's really, I have a request, generate a read response, and you know you just have to get data from the database and send it back. Um, that sort of thing does not necessarily warrant using Active Record or anything that's heavier in terms of ORM to read data. Straight SQL kind of works to get the data out of there and uh, you know having access to that data directly through reads is enough. So in this case, it's a matter of reducing memory allocations to getting the uh, garbage collector to run for either less time or less often, and that has a major impact on the response times that we're, we're seeing. What was it that really drew you to this rewrite? Like, when did the warts begin to show, so to speak? You know, obviously, Rails has worked quite well for many years. You've IPO'd. You're worth lots of money in terms of a company. You're doing amazing. What were the main things that started to prop up that said, you know what, we really need to get this down? Was it simply speed and uptime? Was it memory? Was it servers falling over? Was it, like, servers on fire? <laughs> what was it that really, like, struck this chord and said, we need to really fix this? Two years ago, I think it was a progressive pain point that kind of it never was a big thing that kind of appeared in one night. It's just something that, with time, we started to see performance slowly degrading with uh, in terms of response times on the server, and eventually we kind of had to do something about it to improve things. Um, and interesting story is the initial commits for that applications were Toby himself who took it upon himself to start something and as a prototype, uh, get something up and running and make it as lean as possible to get started. And then eventually that became a team and we picked it up and uh, that became the project that we're working on. But there never was really one thing that kind of said, okay, that's it, we're doing this thing now. It's a, It was a slow process that eventually kind of arrived at the conclusion that we had to do something. Why not try something that's a bit different than what we, we would usually do? And 
let's see where this goes, where this leads. And that's where we are now. And we kind of realized that the approach made sense and mm-hmm. we kind of went along with it and we we're still there now. That makes sense too. Why you mentioned the black box approach in terms of one of the success criteria, meaning that uh, feature parity, you know, obviously if you're going to replace something, you want to be replacing it as equally as possible so that uh, as you begin to switch over, they act very similar. So not only similar, but also ideally bite equal. So we want the exact same responses to be returned. Similar is too vague then. Identical. It is. (laughs) It it depends. It depends. So that's a good question. Um, In some cases, we had to ignore certain uh, things to go closer to what you're saying, closer to equivalent rather than bite equal. So one example of that is, and that's something that's in the blog post, when we do the verification requests to send the initial request to both backends to see if the output is equivalent or ideally the same. What would sometimes happen is on some storefronts, you're, you can try to render some random values and those values may change on a render by render basis. So if I try to do a request to one of the applications and then I do the same to the other application, but both use different random values, that's not going to be byte equal. And because of that, then to us, that would be a verification failure and would be, hey, those two applications are not doing the same thing. There's an issue. What's wrong? But then looking into those, we realized that it wasn't really an issue. It's more of the the output was using something that relied on either time or randomness-based uh, values. And because of that, that's something we have to ignore and say, that's a false negative. We have to just accept it and it's fine and move on to, to real issues. Our friends at Pixie are solving some big problems for applications running on Kubernetes. Instantly troubleshoot your applications on Kubernetes with no instrumentation, debug with scripts, and everything lives inside Kubernetes. But don't take it from me, Kelsey Hightower is pretty bullish on what Pixie brings to the table. Kelsey, do me a favor and let our listeners know what problems Pixie solves for you. Yeah, I did this keynote at KubeCon where we talked about this path to serverless. And the whole serverless movement is really about making our applications simpler, removing the boilerplate, and pushing it down into the platform. Now, one of the most kind of prevalent platforms today is Kubernetes. Works on-prem, works on your laptop, works in the cloud, but it has this missing piece around data and observability. And this is where Pixie comes in to make that platform even better. So the more features we can get from our platform, things like instrumentation, ad hoc debugging, auto telemetry, I can keep all of that logic out of my code base and keep my app super simple. The simpler the app is, the easier it is to maintain. Well said. Thanks, Kelsey. Well, Pixie is in private beta right now, but I'm here to tell you that you're invited to their launch event on October 8th, along with Kelsey, where they'll announce and demo what they're doing with Pixie. Check this show notes for a link to the event and the repo on GitHub, or head to pixielabs.ai to learn more. Once again, pixielabs.ai. So you and the team defined your success criteria, feature parity, improving performance, and improving resilience and capacity. And then you set out to rewrite the thing. You had to somehow have some guide rails to know whether or not you were 
totally screwing up or not. We've <laughs> talked about it a little bit, but guide us through the whole process. This has taken a while and you had to invent a few tricks and tech just to help you get this rewrite written and deployed out into the greater Shopify ecosystem. So tell us how you tackled this problem. So the initial vision around this was to, of course, when you're starting from scratch, um, there's, there's always like a transitional period where you don't have anything. And up to a certain point, you don't have anything working well enough to say, we have something that's equivalent to the previous implementation. So that whole starting phase of the project is very much exploratory and you don't really know if what you're doing works. To reduce the risk of that, uh, we've implemented a what we call a verifier mechanism. So what that allows us to do is to compare real-world production data and see if what we're doing is close to our reference baseline, which is a monolith in this case. So the previous implementation lived in the monolith. We wanted to make sure that what we're doing in the new service is doing the equivalent behavior and, or the equivalent output in terms of what it does. And that mechanism allows us to say, okay, we're looking at the responses from both applications and we see discrepancy online, I don't know, 117, there's a missing module that's not included or something. And so that gives us an idea, okay, we have to fix this. Either most of the time it's something that we haven't impl implemented in the new application, or it's something that's a bug that we've noticed that we didn't know was there, but because we have this verification mechanism that now we realize, oh, maybe there's been a bug in that application in the monolith that we didn't really know about. And that's something that we've ran into of, like it's a bug that's been there for six years. It, we never really knew it was there, but upon doing that verification process, we realized that we had implemented something that was the right thing in the new application. And upon comparison, realized it's never been the right thing in the previous one. So it helped us figure out how to go and implement what's most impactful to get towards completion and parity in terms of features as quickly as possible. So that's why at first, when we first started the project, we started to um, look at a single shop to say, okay, that's the one shop we want to try to support and uh, target for the release of that new thing. Running the verifier mechanism gets us to a point where we're able to say we're that close to getting mm -hmm. that response to be exactly the same for the new application. And from there, move on to other endpoints, other shops, and then figure out how to scale to the, the rest of the platform. So I've done this at tiny scale, where I take one endpoint, I curl the endpoint, take the response, take the other endpoint, the one that's in development mm -hmm. or my, the one I'm building, curl the same thing, take the response, pipe it to diff, and then I look at the diff, and I hope diff says, these two files are identical or whatever it says, <laughs> right? Yep. You never sure. quite got there because of all this randomness and stuff. But is was your verifier essentially a differ that you just like lodged into your request pipeline? Tell us how that worked. Exactly. So that's exactly what the the mental model around this is. And it's just instead of us doing the curls and the diffs manually by hand in the command line, it's something that's happening. Your customers did it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And automatically for us, um, we're getting some data coming back from everyone just requesting storefronts from all around the world. Right. So, of course, there's that part of the process, but there's also the one that we're doing locally on our own machines. So this thing runs in production where the verifier gives us data about, okay, there's that many failures in terms of verification that you have to fix for shop XYZ and then over these different endpoints. 
But also once we know that there's an issue on a given storefront or a given endpoint, we then have to go in our machines and try to figure out, okay, what's the issue? How can I fix it? And how can I give it, like bring it back to parity with the, the baseline implementation? So that specific mechanism is into a Nginx routing module where it's written in Lua. We're using OpenRESD. And what it essentially does is at the very beginning of the project, all traffic was going, all storefront traffic was going to the monolith for storefront traffic. Nothing was really going to the new implementation as we were just getting started. The nice thing about that is for every, I don't, I don't remember exactly what sampling rate we had, but for example, something like for one in every thousand requests that are coming into Shopify for storefronts, take it, but also do the request to the new implementation and compare the output of those two uh, requests, do a diff on them, and then upload whatever diff results happen to an external store so we can look at them later and see what uh, was the issue. So that helped us figure out that certain shops have more diffs than others, certain endpoints have more diffs than others, but also seeing the traffic patterns of where we should try to tackle uh, at first was a super nice signal for us to say, okay, there's that many failures there. Let's try to do this one first to get as much impact as we can Mm -hmm. uh, there and then move on to the other ones eventually. What kind of diffs are we talking about here? Like what kind of non-parity? What's what's an extreme example and maybe a non-extreme example of a diff gone wrong? Let's just say. Oh, this, I I could talk about this for hours. Um, So uh, one of the most extreme examples is you try to open the page. So I'm talking about a buyer's perspective. You open up a storefront and assuming that the new implementation was going to render that page, all you would see is a blank page, nothing else. And that's one of the most extreme examples where you're like, okay, this this cannot go out in production, right? And one of the reasons behind that could be a missing head tag. For whatever reason, there's a missing thing that the page does not work at all. Some of the more extreme examples in terms of, not in terms of how a buyer would perceive it, but in terms of how we would perceive it, is there's a missing new line. But that's it. There's just one missing new line somewhere. For some reason, we're not returning the same string for whatever method. And the verifier screams, hey, that's not the same thing. There's a missing new line there, which is not in the old one. And that's something that we have to deal with. So of course, all of those non-problematic issues we were seeing, we started to say, oh, that's not actually an issue. We can just ignore that away and say, that new line is not really a problem or fix it, of course. But there's some cases where there's issues that we realize, just like the time-based and the randomness-based issues that we didn't really want to block us as we started to get more and more support for certain requests. And we were able to say, okay, well, these patterns that look like this, for example, if there's a timestamp in the, the responses, we can just ignore that away. If there's a script ID that's being generated by the script or something, ignore that away. And then as more patterns started to come up, we came up with a pool of patterns that we knew weren't problematic. And knowing those, we were able to focus on the actual issues. Let's talk about that then, because I mean, this isn't like a typical error tracker that you're doing. Like this is parody, and I, I'm curious how you log these things. How do you keep track of and organize this so not only you but others can, you know, triage this and say, okay, these are the ones we should pay attention to. These are the ones we we shouldn't. So like, it's probably not your typical bug tracker that's doing this for you. Or maybe it is. I don't know. How did you log these things and then organize them? 
Great question. And it, it actually ties into how would you do this? So assuming I'm asking you the question, you have to do this project where you implement this new thing and you have a million merchants on your platform that are using the like so many storefronts on the platform, you have to get parity for all of them. Do you go with a breadth uh, first approach where you try to support as many shops as you can for, say, a single endpoint, like all index pages, and you support all index pages across all of the uh, merchants, or you try to go for a single merchant and cover everything for that single merchant, but maybe that merchant has some features that the other merchant does not use, and you have to think about, well, maybe I should consider other merchants first. Should I consider the bigger merchants, the smaller merchants, because there's more people? Do I want to look at it as a theme-based approach? Because usually there's going to be a mass amount of shops that use the same theme. Different ways of looking at this. And in this case, uh, it kind of ended up being a thing where we started with a handful of shops at first that were the most, I guess I could say problematic shops in terms of performance, where they would cause a high amount of load on the platform because of their storefront traffic. And from there, getting the diffs from them to fix them eventually. But there are two ways of, uh, of seeing this. So it's either breadth first or depth first. So to analyze the actual diffs that we see in terms of uh, parity, we upload that to cloud storage where all the diffs are kind of aggregated and later on we can figure out how those are. Um, and then the other side of this is that we keep track of where the diffs happen in terms of is it shop X, Y, Z, uh, is it endpoint ABC? And based on that, we can run through our logging uh, pipeline to see where do most of the issues happen? Is it on that shop? Is it on that endpoint? And that gives us an idea of what we should try to tackle uh, at first. So on Splunk, we have so many dashboards uh, that are just trying to figure out, uh, you should look at this first because this is where most of the issues are happening. Datadog is also giving us a bunch of information in terms of where we should focus on first. And later on, what's happening is that on the developer side of things, we have tooling locally to be able to kind of calm through the diffs that we have stored on the cloud storage part of it and read through what are the most frequent ones. I don't know what I would have done here. Honestly, it's it seems, as you describe it, quite overwhelming. As you'd mentioned, I might have gone down both roads and tested both sides of the water and sort of drawn some consensus from the team to see, okay, which direction do we feel is better, breadth or depth? And I think I might have done a little bit of both to get a sampling of each direction. But it seems like just daunting. Millions of merchants, you know, unlimited amounts of traffic, tons to dig through, and anomalies everywhere. So I have extreme empathy for you. It, it seems like a daunting task. I would send, there's a team, right? So yeah, it's not just me, of course. We're a team of... Uh... Of course, yeah. I mean, the proverbial you, meaning like you many. So then you like div divide and conquer, right? So like you send one team depth and one team breadth. And then you meet in the middle. That's like when you're interesting. Yeah, that's something we did try uh, to do. So some people were focusing on a single shop, while others were trying to cover as many shops as possible. And I think what eventually happened is, you know, when you look at things, you have to do everything at some point anyway. So right, you're gonna have to go through both paths, yeah. kind of as a balance. Try to do both at the same at the same time, and eventually you'll reach a critical mass of supported requests from where you can kind of move on to go into the more specialized things right. for, for depth. So this is my kind of problem, by the way. I'm a completionist. I love this kind of problem. Here's a big goal, right? We, get, we know what the end looks like. It's called 100%. Mm -hmm. We're not there yet. We know we're, we're at 32% or whatever your numbers indicate. 
And we have a clear path to getting there. What do you do? Well, you check the next diff and then you fix that problem. And then you, oh, an hour at 30. Okay. And you try to find the ones where you can like in, implement a module and like chop off a whole leg, you know, and you're like, oh, look at that. That module just solved these 15 problems. And you're just on your way to the end. This is like a good video game where you're like, I'm exactly. trying to find, like I got my main quest and my side quests. I've got to get them all. So let's just start hacking away and making some progress. I would I would enjoy this. I know I'm sure it gets you get down in the mucky muck and you're like, oh, these new lines are killing me, you know. Yeah, um, very much. Yeah, but still, I'm sure there are those huge wins where you just slice off one big chunk and you see all these different stores go to parity. It has to be pretty cool. And that's super interesting you say that. So the, the percentage-based thing, uh, we do have that. We have a dashboard that says this is the current support we have. Uh, we're going towards 100%. And... One of the funnier moments during this project where at the very beginning, it was easier, I think, than it is now because we're running into this, uh, we're seeing diminishing returns now because it's more edge cases and we're trying to fix all the tiny, small things that are left to be fixed. Right. Um, but in the very beginning of the project, every single PR could potentially unlock so many more shops and so many more endpoints. So on every deploy, we kind of look at that percentage uh, metric and say, how much is my PR going to do there? Yeah. Is it going to no, bump fun. by 0.5%? Is it going to be 1%? Like 2%? That's, that would be amazing. So that kind of game, uh, gamification of the thing also made it fun yeah. and uh, helped us run towards uh, 100%. So two questions about Monolith in the meantime. The first one is, and maybe I guess they are related. So was Monolith a moving target? Or is it pretty static in its output? Like as you build it, because it takes a couple of years, were there changes going into the monolith storefront? So you had to play catch up? We did. And that sucks. So play catch up for different things, right? So you have to play catch up with internal changes in terms of other developers working on the monolith and us trying to catch up with that. There's also catching up in terms of what merchants do. So if merchants start using a given feature that we don't we just do not support in the new application yet then that's another source of potential catching up we have to do. So, so you could go backward. You could wake up in the morning, you were at 33%, now you're at 28% because somebody used a new feature. Exactly. That's happened multiple times where you, exactly that. You go out in the evening, you're like, oh, yeah, nice. We're at like 37%. And then the next morning was something like 17%. <laughs> we didn't do anything. What happened, right? Or you go to lunch and you're like, we, we left for lunch at 32%. We came back at 20. What, what happened here? No, that's demoralizing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that sort of thing was uh, one of the harder parts. Of course, you have to deal with how do you get people to onboard your new project to get them to help and support that new project as well as you trying to get them to work on it. So eventually we, I decided to make it kind of my quest to make it as easy as possible for others to start contributing to that project by making the documentation amazing, as welcoming as possible to reduce the friction and to basically get people to say, hey, look, it looks more exciting to work on that new thing than it is to work on what I'm currently doing. So in that approach, uh, people started eventually to come onto the project and on their own kind of contribute to the new thing rather than only keep working on the uh, the previous implementation. So that's something that really helped. I think in terms of how we drew the line was if it's something that was already in the monolith by the time we started the project, that's something that we would have to take on ourselves, the team working on the, the rewrite. If, however, it's something that's 
not in the monolith yet, it's not anywhere, it's a new project, then that team should be able to consider both projects because they know it exists. They know they have to build for the future and make it into the new application as well. And that's how we kind of got that line drawn mm-hmm. to say who's handling what. And eventually we kind of reached a a point in the project where most people were also writing that code in the new application. So like they knew they had to do it to be future-proof. Mm-hmm. So my second question about the monolith is because you were going for parity, did you ever have to re-implement bugs or suboptimal aspects of the monolith because you had to have the exact same output? Yes. That also (laughs) sucks. It's like, this is my brand new thing. I have to put the bad stuff in the new thing. Yeah. Well, so it's a a bad thing, I guess, for us as developers in terms of uh, it doesn't feel good. Yeah. Demoralizing. But in terms of how a buyer or a merchant would see it, people using Shopify, to them, that's good. Right. one of the goals we have is to basically make it so that for storefront, uh, specifically for online store, if you have a theme archive that you have from eight years ago, for example, and you try to upload that today, it should work the same way it did eight years ago. We try to be as backwards compatible as possible. So, of course, if there's something that was introduced eight years ago, we have to make sure that's still there. And the other thing is Liquid, the gem that we use for and that we built and we use for storefront templates is almost Turing complete. So the possibilities of what Liquid can do is almost infinite. So there's features that we shipped at some point that kind of became used in ways that we did not expect and that we did not really think about that uh, we still have to support today. Even though that's not what we want it to be used for, uh, we have to keep it this way. So of course, we had to port some bugs uh, that unfortunately are kind of, eh, it doesn't feel good, but for the people using that, it's a, I think, a service to them to say, look, your thing you had from a few years ago still works today, and there's no breaking change in there. What's up, friends? When was the last time you considered how much time your team is spending building and maintaining internal tooling? And I bet if you looked at the way your team spends its time, you're probably building and maintaining those tools way more often than you thought, and you probably just shouldn't have to do that. I mean, there is such a thing as retool. Have you heard about retool yet? Well, companies like DoorDash, Braggs, Plaid, and even Amazon, they use Retool to build internal tools super fast. And the idea is that almost all internal tools look the same. They're made up of tables, dropdowns, buttons, text inputs, search, and all this is very similar. And Retool gives you a point, click, drag and drop interface that makes it super simple to build internal UIs like that in hours, not days. So. Stop wasting your time and use Retool. Check them out at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. process of the rewrite you have this verifier in place it's getting some traffic to it via the nginx routing module but this is for your learning right so it's still going to the main monolith it's also going to the verifier running your code doing the diffs at a certain point 
I assume, since the blog post is out there and, you know, we got Black Friday coming up. You are confident enough, you have a high enough percentage on a high enough number of stores or themes that you say, we're going to start rolling this thing out. Tell us how, I think the routing module played a, a role here. You kind of automated this process. Uh, tell us about that, because I think it's pretty neat. Yeah, so along with the process of verifying traffic, we wanted to start rendering that traffic in for real people out there buying stuff uh, to serve that traffic using the new implementation. And we simply leveraged the existing uh, verifier mechanism to say, if you have a certain amount of requests that have been equivalent and that's happened in a given time frame, then consider that endpoint for that specific shop to be uh, eligible to be rendered by the new implementation. So that was all kept tracked as a very, it's very much a stateful thing, a stateful system to keep track of what those requests are, should they be considered, and if they are, start rendering. So all of that was being kept track in the verifier mechanism, again, in Nginx, um, storing that onto a key value store to just keep track of how many requests we're getting, whether they're the same or they're not. And we have this whole routing mechanism that we control to say, okay, assuming that we have that amount of traffic and that amount of time that is equivalent to the baseline reference uh, implementation, then the, uh, the routing module would start to send traffic to the new implementation instead. From there came the need to do some uh, verifications as well against the monolith this time. So because we now start to route traffic to the new implementation, you also want to make sure that what you're doing is still valid. So you're just not you're not just sending traffic to the other place and saying, okay, we're done. We're just moving on to the other thing. Right you want to keep yeah. making sure that what you're doing is still valid. So we keep verifying traffic, kind of reverse verification, where right. you're doing the verification usually from... Uh, the monolith to the other one. Now you're doing the the opposite because you're serving traffic from the other application. And that kind of started out as a few shops that we wanted to take care of because those were the main winners from what the new application was doing in terms of impact on performance and resilience and everything. And once we started to gain confidence, I think that's when we kind of opened up the, like we pressed on the throttle and just moved it up to a lot more shops to say, mm -hmm. okay, that mechanism works. We're seeing that it scales. We're comfortable with opening it up to more merchants. And uh, that's where we kind of reached a critical mass of serving the, the traffic for more merchants on that new implementation. So it was shop by shop. It is shop by shop. Also split up by endpoint itself. So for a single shop, we're not necessarily rendering the entire shop with the new implementation. We're maybe rendering half of that storefronts uh, endpoints with the new one and still the other half with the old one. That should not change anything for the people browsing that storefront. To them, it's really the same thing. We're just maybe a bit faster depending on what endpoint they're on. Mm. How long do you keep that up in terms of this reverse parity? Because kind of going back to the last segment when you mentioned you're enticing people to write new features in, you know, monolith and new application. And I suppose to kind of keep this reverse parity at some point, you got to keep the, the same, I guess, features in both code bases. So do you sort of like reverse the idea of like, okay, we're going to build a new, but also we're going to build an old too for a certain period to kind of keep that. Is that what you've done or that is did that force you to do that to kind of keep that overlap in terms of parity over time? 
Pretty much. And that's, I think, one of the main challenges in terms of if I'm a developer at Shopify that has to ship something for a specific period of time, you had to write the thing in both applications, which is not ideal. There's additional work pressure added onto this. And the goal was to make that period as short as possible. So now our focus is really on removing the old code from the monolith to say, okay, well, there's only one canonical source of truth now. That's a new implementation. This is where the code should be going and uh, reducing that period of time where there's two implementations going on. How long will that be then, you think? What's your anticipation for that overlap? It's been interesting because of the way we kind of advertise the project internally, there's a bit of time where it was more considered as a an experiment, and we didn't really want to go and shout off rooftops to say, hey, there's this new thing. It was more of a thing where we're kind of internally experimenting with something, seeing if it works, and... There was a point eventually we realized, okay, this is going to be the future of Storefront at Shopify internally, and this is how we should be doing things. From that moment on is when we kind of wanted to get people to be aware that they should be writing their uh, their features with that new implementation in mind, to think of how they would build it based on the fact that we now have this new thing. It's not the old one anymore. You may still write the thing in the older one if you need it to be available for the previous implementation. But in terms of making sure that people don't have to write that code twice. Of course, they have to for some period of time. It's not great, and uh, we wanted to make that as short as possible, but that's something that uh, did happen for for a while and still happens for certain parts of the the storefront based on what we do support and what we don't at the moment. This is a trade-off, really. I mean, anytime you do a rewrite, you have to ask yourself, what am I willing to sacrifice to do this rewrite. Should I do it at all? Which is kind of the bigger picture. We haven't really asked you that. I mean, to some degree it's in the, it's in between all the lines we're, we're drawn here, but this is a trade-off. Like having to do that is a trade-off of, you know, something that's worth pouring into in the future. So to me, it's like, well, it's un, it's not ideal, but in order to rewrite in a smart way, all the steps you've talked about, the verification service, the diffing, all the work, the double implementation for a time period, the overlap, and the continued reverse verification, like to me, that's like necessary. Maybe in particular with your style of application, you know, in terms of your customer base, your all the, you know, routing you have to do just generally, but like that's a necessary trade off that you have to do when you say, okay, we have to solve this problem for the future. And unfortunately, this, you know, lab experiment gone right is the future. So we have to do it this way in order to rewrite this thing. You know, like to me, that's just a, a necessary trade-off. It's like a tiny bit of pain now that <laughs> is going to be so much better later on. So mm-hmm. why not do it now? Yeah. You know, ripping off the Band-Aid and just dealing with it now. Of course, it's a bit painful, but there's going to be so many benefits from this. So let's not think about it too much for now. So are you beyond the pain or are you still in the pain in terms of the double implementation? Your, your fellow devs. We're way beyond the pain. So Monolith doesn't get any new features? It does in rare cases. In very, very rare cases, and again, I said earlier about how the storefront implementation we're doing now is mostly a read a read application. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the features would be mostly for everything that updates or writes. That may still be going in the monolith for now. And with time, we may be thinking about doing something where writes would also go to the new implementation. Not clear yet if that's something we want to do. But uh, at the moment, we're really focusing on getting those reads uh, served by the new implementation. So here you are, you've ripped out the Band-Aid, you're at the end of this process, you've made the necessary trade-offs, 
was it all worth it? Would you do it again? What are the wins? What, uh, what are the takeaways from Shopify and your team? Right. So I think one of the main things I keep in mind of this is I've read so many articles and blog posts and opinions everywhere on the internet over the years that say, don't do rewrites. That's like the main takeaway to, to remember for all of those articles. And I want to be the person who does the opposite and says, rewrites are possible. You can do rewrites if you do them right. And how do you do them right? There's many key things involved in there, but it's not a thing where you have to kind of push the rewrite option aside if it's something that you don't think is possible. The main thing, of course, I think is communicating early and often with the people that are involved into that process. So getting the the right, so of course, in, in the example of Shopify developers, um, it's getting them aware that there's going to be this new application that's coming out that you have to think about in terms of when your features and your roadmaps and everything have to be aware of that new application. And one mistake I did myself was trying to send an email at some point to say, hey, this is the new implementation of how storefronts work. One email is not going to cut it. Like you have to be frequently getting into in touch with people and making sure that they're aware. And eventually the word kind of gets on, people get excited about the thing. And that's when you kind of get this excitement going on for that new implementation. And along with making sure that you have the most frictionless process to work on that new thing, when you get those two things combined, that's where magic happens. And people want to work on the thing. The people also realize that it's it's easier, it's more fun to work on the new thing. So it's it becomes a self-realizing kind of prophecy where mm-hmm. you want it to happen, but people kind of make it happen for you. Um, and that happens through communication, I think. So that's one thing, of course, in terms of how people using Shopify benefit from this. Um, we're seeing some great results in terms of uh, performance. On average, uh, over all traffic coming up on the platform, we're seeing around 3 to 5x performance improvements for storefront response times on cache misses. So, of course, we're focusing on cache misses because cache hits are almost always fast, but whenever there is a cache miss, that's what we want to optimize and make sure it is always fast. So that was kind of the first rule, I guess, of the project to say, don't really think about caching because we want to first have very, very fast cache misses. And only when we know that we have some very fast cache misses, do we want to start thinking about caching on top of that. So we kind of, we don't want to cheat away the cache misses by saying, oh, it's not a problem because we just add caching onto there. Sure. But what happens when you don't have a cache hit? That's when we want to be extra Mm -hmm. fast. And in this case, we're seeing some, uh, some good performance there. In some cases, we're seeing some some storefronts kind of surprised us in terms of how they performed, where we were seeing up to 10 times faster cache misses. So that's something we were very surprised to see in the early process. Um, and we kind of knew that this was the right way to go because we were seeing those good results. If we've got somebody listening to this show right now, and they're thinking, you know what, Maxine's right. I think we could probably do a rewrite. You've obviously made them believe in the potential if done right. What are some of the steps you would take to do it right? We've talked about a lot of them, but like if you can kind of distill it down to like three or five kind of core pieces of advice, what might those be for our listeners? So I think one of them is to make sure you have the shortest feedback loop possible when you kind of get off track. So for example, our verifier uh, mechanism gets us there in a way that if we implement something that's not equivalent to the previous implementation, we're aware of it really quickly. In terms of minutes, when we deploy, we know, okay, we shipped something that's different, let's look into it, figure out what's going on, and then 
move on to the next thing. So that's number one. The second one would be to start with a tiny scope. Just scope it down to a small thing that kind of validates the approach to say, is this something we even want to go down? Uh, is, is this a road we even want to go down uh, towards? Or is it not something that's realistic? So if it is something that's realistic, having that smaller scope will get you to a point where you know, okay, this seems to make sense so far. I don't see why it wouldn't be uh, okay as well for the rest of the project. Let's make it happen. So that that is the second one. I think the third thing, as it, like I said, communicating early and often, but also making it easy and enjoyable to work on the new thing, like ma- reducing friction, the, the bar to entry to work on the new thing is a critical thing to get adoption internally for people that need to ship their features and their roadmaps on the different applications. If it's enjoyable for them to do it on the new one, mm-hmm. they're going to do it. You don't have to force them to do anything. It's just going to happen by itself. Yeah, if you're going to cause them pain, cause them the least amount of pain, right? Exactly. <laughs> and tr- kind of trying to balance this out, right? So you found right. If you have to get people to write code in both applications, at least make it enjoyable in the new one. Right. Or more enjoyable than it would be in the previous one. It was maybe distill that one a bit more. Is that you mentioned documentation being a critical piece for you? What beyond documentation helps that? I think the one thing I'd say is if you have a Slack channel, a public Slack channel, be the best customer service person you can be. If people arrive with questions, be available, help them they are the people that are eventually going to make that a success or not. You are kind of the the messenger to say, hey, we have the new, this new thing we're trying to build. Can you help us? And if they are there and they receive the help, that's going to help tremendously to get everyone on board. And because that person that receives the help is going to talk to the project, to their own team. And the team will eventually get to that point where because someone on their team is familiar with it, they kind of become that expert on the team. And the word spreads. So helping people, creating this kind of expert network within the company that are aware of your app and are they're excited about it, kind of share the word for you. So helping people, I think, would be the, the best thing. And being a good customer service person to just get them closer to what they need to achieve. One reason that a big rewrite is scary is because it's, difficult or even impossible to bound or bind your risk, right? It's unbound risk. And there are steps you can take to fix that. You guys had very clear goals. I think that was one of the reasons you succeeded. And you had a way of measuring that as you went. So like that's clear and awesome. Were there any failure mechanisms like kill switch? We're not going to make it. This is not good because you, you said it was an experiment. But the other thing is you can say is like, well, what would failure look like? Obviously, you succeeded. But did you have failure thresholds where it's like, you know what, we're going to abandon this and go back to the monolith because we'll try something totally else new? Or were those things not thought about? No, they definitely were. They definitely were. Um, internally, we call those tripwires. So eventually you get to a point where you have to figure those out if you don't you'll just keep going and right. you're going to get yourself deeper and deeper into the problem. So figuring out what those tripwires are, at what point do you, you're comfortable with those tripwires and saying, okay, we're, we're just getting too deep now. And now we have to come back and, and go to something else. That's something we did. So for example, some of them, we talked a bit about, um, you know, how we get some uh, catching up to do with internal uh, changes. That's one of the tripwires. If we're not able to catch up in time with, whatever's being happening in the, whatever's being changed in the internal uh, monolith, 
that's something we have to be to be careful with. If it's something about we're by rolling out the application, for example, in production, if we're causing some uh, incidents in production, that's a tripwire. Because if the monolith is not doing that and we are, then potentially we're not ready to go in production and we have to be careful with that. So there's multiple tripwires we set to make sure that this did not happen. And thankfully, we didn't hit those. We didn't hit them too often to, to say, okay, it's a problem we, we should look into and maybe reconsider the entire approach. So uh, in this case, figuring out those tripwires way before you get into a point where you want to roll out is critical to make sure you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, I like the word tripwire. Mm-hmm. That's a very good, concise word for exactly what it means uh, in this case. Uh, is there anything else we haven't asked you that you're like, man, I really I want to talk about this before we tail out? We're at that point. So what else you got? One experience that was uh, quite interesting uh, to me personally was... When we started the project, we were around five people, four or five people. And that's in the first few months. We start to get progress. We eventually realize that we're getting closer to rendering certain pages for certain merchants. And that's only internally. We're not, not in production yet. And at some point, we get a request to showcase it to everyone, all developers and everyone at Shopify internally during our uh, Friday town hall uh, meeting. So everyone's kind of watching this. We're kind of sharing contacts and everything. And this is streamed to all employees at Shopify. So the one thing we did was to have a simple web page that shows you the same page being rendered by the monolith and then by the new implementation we're doing. So side by side, two iframes just requesting the same uh, page and seeing which one's faster. And when that thing ran and uh, during the live stream, when we showed it up, the new implementation was way faster than the new one. And I think that's when I kind of it clicked into my head and in many people's heads, okay, this is the right path forward. They're doing the right work and we have to continue doing this thing. So from that moment on, I think there was kind of a, it was kind of a turning point in the heads of, of developers working on this to say, this is the thing we're now focusing on in terms of, of the future to make sure this happens. That's awesome. I can imagine that feeling because you weren't expecting that, uh, that call like, hey, can you demo this to everybody? Yeah, it, it, we weren't. Were you like about to throw up? Were you antsy? Were you like... <laughs> <laughs> so, like, of course, we had tried it before a few times to make sure it was okay. Sure. But seeing the real thing in, like, the live demo of clicking the button and both pages come up, seeing the new impl- impl- implementation coming up way faster, it was like, oh, okay, good. We're, we're in a good place. We're going to be fine. And we can keep working on the next... Uh, yeah endpoints to make sure that we're doing this for, for everyone on Shopify. That's a cool story. I'm glad you shared that. And uh, congratulations to you and the rest of the team making this happen. I mean, I know this has been a multi-year road uh, with many facets, opportunities for tripwires. Obviously, we hit success, which is great. You're at plus 90% parity right now, you know, on your way to still to 100, right? Is that is that still the case based on your blog post or is that are you closer to 100 now? We're getting towards a hundred. Um, exact numbers vary by the day again because we're catching up with certain things and there's mm-hmm. external circumstances. But we're getting very, very close to hundred uh, percent. The majority of traffic is being served by that uh, new implementation now. So um, it's really a matter of fixing the last few diffs and figuring out, you know, how can we get to that place uh, faster? Of course, you have, like you said um, earlier, Jared. It's really it's a game where you have to pick up the issues one by one and uh-huh. just fix them until you get to a point where everything is fine. But uh, 
but yeah, massive team effort to to get there. A lot of infrastructure work, a lot of parity diff fixing issues, uh, a lot of external communications as well with the merchants. Like it's a it's a Shopify wide uh, initiative, and seeing the thing take off and work is mm-hmm. super uh, rewarding in the end. Well, we've appreciated this conversation, and thank you so much for sharing this story with our with Jared and I and, mm-hmm. and the rest of the audience here on Changelog. Thanks so much for uh, for everything. This was very fun. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Changelog. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't heard yet, we have launched Changelog Plus Plus. It is our membership program that lets you get closer to the metal, remove the ads, make them disappear, as we say, and enjoy supporting us. It's the best way to directly support this show and our other podcasts here on Changelog.com. And if you've never been to changelaw.com, you should go there now. Again, join Changelaw Plus Plus to directly support our work and make the ads disappear. Check it out at changelaw.com slash plus plus. Of course, huge thanks to our partners who get it, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And thank you to you for listening. We appreciate you. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.